Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, good morning. Yeah, that's not going to work. Good morning. After that music, you're just going to say barely say good morning. No. It's good to see you guys. This right here, this, this video, these images of the Ten Commandments are the ones that we typically see, we typically have put into our culture. It's often the ways that we view the Ten Commandments. Uh, we have, uh, you have Mel Brooks with the 15 uh, Ten Commandments, uh, or you may have the Prince of Egypt, the animated cartoon, or you may have uh, Charlton Heston, if you grew up with Charlton Heston for the 1956 Ten Commandments. Uh, often we hear Ten Commandments and with those images in mind, and we think law. We think rules, we think regulations, do this or don't do that. And we often see this legalism that is played into that. And for many people, the Ten Commandments seem outdated, that they may not apply to us. Didn't Jesus take care of that? So do we have to really have those pressed upon our heart at this point? But what if Scripture, what if Scripture gives us a different picture than we often imagine when it comes to the Ten Commandments? What if Scripture gives us a, a more a beautiful picture of what is going on with the Ten Commandments, what leads up to the Ten Commandments, and what that actually is, rather than just some legalistic, uh, outdated list of rules? Approximately one month ago, I officiated the wedding of Katie and Bryce White. And I got to watch as Katie walked down the aisle and the two of them committing to each other, their, their lives, their, their marriage, uh, giving vows and promises of what they will do um, with each other as they continue in, uh, to maintain and enhance their lives together in their marriage. It was a small ceremony with a few friends and some family. And as a matter of fact, at that wedding, they did something that I have never seen anybody at a wedding do before. Because the gathering was small, it was small enough to where Katie and Bryce invited everybody at the wedding to come up on the stage, and they took a picture of the whole wedding. That's the bride, the groom, the wedding party, the family, uh, friends, everybody that was in the room got to be in this picture. This is the picture. That's everybody. Isn't that cool that everybody, they have a picture of everybody in the wedding. I was reminded at the end of first service that the wedding planner wasn't there. She goes, I wasn't in the picture and I was there. And so this is almost everybody. If you see in the very back middle, there's me holding up the, the marriage certificate right there. But there's also somebody else in this picture that I want you to see this person's face. They are more excited than almost anybody else in the whole wedding party other than the bride and groom. Take a look at this. Right? Do you see the joy in that man's face? Do you see that? He is so excited for them. And that's what weddings do. Weddings it can be these beautiful times where somebody like Sam Souter up here singing and worshiping. But then he goes to a wedding and looks like this. He was playing piano. He was so excited for them. Let's go back to the other picture. But often when we say wedding in our culture, in our space, this is what we imagine. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of wedding parties are about that big. It's some of the larger ones that we see. And so I want us to kind of get this image in our mind about what God may be doing that may not look like this. That maybe there's a bigger picture of what happens in Scripture that's not just what we imagine today. I want you to keep in mind that as we read through Scripture, all of Scripture, it is all about a marriage. It is all about a wedding. It is about humanity being the bride and God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, is the groom. All of Scripture is this beautiful love story. 
I want to give you an example. If you were to go read the book of Hosea, the whole thing is about a marriage between a man and a woman. But he also, more importantly, relates it to God being the righteous man and the woman being a prostitute. Like Israel, who had prostituted themselves out to all kinds of idols. Then you go and take a look at the book Song of Solomon. We're going to read from that now and make you all sweat. But that book is all about marriage. It's all about a wedding. It's all about this bonding of people. Jesus himself speaks very strongly on multiple occasions about being the bridegroom and humanity being his bride. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, one of my favorite scriptures. Paul displays one of the most striking examples of this idea. Ephesians 5, 31 says this, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, quoting from Genesis. This is a profound mystery, he says, but watch this, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is all wedding language, all marriage language, but not between a man and a woman, but between God and humanity, God and Israel, God and us. So what if, what if what is happening in Exodus 19 and 20, where we're going to be this morning, and you can turn there if you want to, we're going to be in Exodus 19. What if in those texts, with the giving of the Ten Commandments, we have a wedding ceremony versus this legalistic, outdated list. I know that may sound a little bit odd, but in all honesty, a wedding may be one of the most accurate descriptions of what's happening here. Again, it may sound odd, a little strange to us in the here and now, but to those who were the first hearers of Exodus 19 and 20, it's a good chance that they would have had in their minds a wedding ceremony when they read those or heard those words. What if what they imagined was a wedding ceremony with what they heard from the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments would have been wedding vows, the beginning of a marriage promise, a wedding between a bride, Israel, and the groom, Yahweh, God. But our idea of weddings today are very different than how they would have depicted weddings back then. To grasp what God is doing in the Ten Commandments as a possible wedding ceremony, we need to grasp a small understanding of ancient Eastern weddings. In these weddings, these were most likely arranged. Most likely, who wants to go into arranged marriages now? Nobody did in first service either, just curious. They were arranged marriages, very different from us today, where we get to choose for ourselves who our spouse is going to be. And I'm going to put this in a very simplistic way. There's lots of other details to this, lots of other ins and outs. Just very simplistically, arranged, arranged marriages essentially were where the families, the two families, the potential bride, the potential groom, would come together and determine if these two people were a good match for each other. Not only for the kids, but for the family, the family community that was there. Is this going to be a good match for the betterment of the families, for the betterment of the community? And if an arrangement is reached, a price is given for the bride and is agreed to. The potential groom and his father would then travel to the bride's home, possibly local, but they may have been in a different village. They would travel there hours, possibly days, and they would travel by foot. Once they got there, the first of two ceremonies would take place, a betrothal ceremony and a wedding ceremony, which have completely different names than what I'm saying in Hebrew. Just for the purposes of the sermon, we're going to stick with that. The betrothal ceremony we're going to talk about a little bit later. 
But at this point, after that ceremony takes place, the bride and groom are now legally bound, and the only way they did not proceed to finalize the marriage later at this point is by a certificate of the divorce that the groom would give to the bride. If you want to see what that might have looked like, go read the story of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. That gives you a good depiction of what that may have looked like. The second ceremony that happens later on is to finalize, to finalize the vows, and in order to consummate the marriage and to bring it into full fruition. But this betrothal ceremony held great significance and was ultimately the start of marriage. So the ceremony happens. The groom leaves after the betrothal ceremony, and he travels back home. He goes to his father's house to prepare them a room. He goes to his father's house to prepare them a room. The groom would build an extra room, an extension onto the father's house. The idea back then for them was not to grow up and move away from your family, to be independent from your family, much like we live today. The idea was to grow up and stay as a part of your father's house, to be a part of your father's legacy, to help in his profession and for the betterment of the community and for the family that they're there for. So the groom would build an extra room for him and his bride onto his father's house. Now the groom had no idea how long this process would take place. He did not get to decide what was going to happen here. He had no idea. He did not determine that the room was ready and therefore I can go get my bride. No, that's the father's job. The father determines when this was ready. Only the father of the groom determines the time when he can say to his son, go and get your bride. Now, the father might be generous. The father might help with the extension, or he might have the groom do all the work by himself, use it as a lesson, one last lesson for my son. He may walk in one day and look at what his son's been doing and go, this is it? This is the work you're putting into your bride? This is the work you're putting into your home? This is the work you're going to put into your marriage? And it's possible he may make him tear it down and start over. The groom has no idea how long this will take. It may take three weeks three months, or three years. Like the groom, the bride has no idea when the groom is coming back. She knows that he is going to prepare a place for them. She knows it's going to be extension of her, of his family, but she knows not when he's going to come back, but she is prepared and eagerly waiting for his return. Now, with all these images in your head, this image of, of going and building a room onto the father's house, this image of a bride waiting for the groom to come get him, this image of a father being the only one who knows the time, but he's going to say, go and get your bride. With these images in your head, I want to read from John 14, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus comforting his disciples before he is arrested and crucified. Watch this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Awesome, isn't it? Later, or at least in a different text, Matthew 25, 36, Jesus again is speaking to his disciples about when he's going to return at the end of days. And the disciples say, when, when is this going to happen? Jesus, tell us when this is going to happen. And Jesus answers this way, Matthew 24, 36. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. 
only the Father knows. Isn't it awesome the way that God writes his love story? That Jesus uses their own wedding language in order for them to understand what's actually taking place here. It's not just these things to obey, but is a relationship, is a marriage that is taking place between God and his people. So then one day the father will say to the groom, I think you're done. I think you are ready. Go and get your bride. And the whole family will pack up and go to the bride's village or house, however far it is. They may show up in the middle of the day. They may show up in the middle of the night, depending on when the father says to go and how far they have to travel. But the groom would arrive and the bride has to be ready. Once the groom is announced that he is there, the bride will be taken away to be consecrated. To be consecrated is to be set apart, to be prepared. In this case, to be set apart for the groom. She'd be whisked away to go have this ritual bath to be prepared for her husband to be brought and presented to the groom. Again, a simplification here, but once the ceremony begins, the bride and groom would assemble under what's called a chupa. C-H-U-P-P-A-H. This is a canopy. This is a canopy that represents the presence of God. This is what a, a hoopa would look like modern day now. It's this canopy that represents the presence of God. What we're doing, we're doing in the presence of God. His hoopa is above us and is with us. This is the time when they would exchange vows while under the hoopa, the presence of God. The groom would make a presentation of covenant vows. Often these would be represented by items, things specific that he would pick in order to display to his bride to say, this is what I want for us. This is what I want and what I imagine for us in our marriage. This is where I want us to go. And he would present them to the bride. And the bride had the option to either accept or reject these vows that the husband was bringing to her. If she accepted them, again, more ceremony stuff goes on. But ultimately, right after the ceremony, they would go and they would consummate the marriage. I'm not going into the details on that. We're going to leave that one over there. Once that was consummated, once that took place, then the price for the bride would be exchanged. And then the groom and the bride would spend approximately the next year spending time with each other. Because this was arranged. Time for them to get to know one another. He wouldn't work. He could not be called out to battle and to fight. He would stay with his bride to get to know her and for her to get to know him. So this is this brief overview, very simplistic version of ancient Eastern weddings. So what in the world does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? What in the world does this have to do with what we're going to read in Exodus 19 and 20? How could this possibly apply in any way? These are just legalistic rules of do's and don'ts, right? Exodus 19 is the precursor to the giving of the Ten Commandments. And most of us know the story of the Exodus, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, that, that they, are, they are slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God sends Moses, and through Moses and through ten plagues, he brings Israel out of Egypt, and over three months has them travel until they're in uh, the, the desert of Sinai, and brings them to the foot of the mountain at Sinai. And when he gets them there, essentially, in my own paraphrase, God says to them, and he's also saying to us, today, I want to enter into a special relationship with you. Watch this. Verse 1 of Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings, a groom getting his bride. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, keep our wedding vows, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That word there is wedding language. That is what a groom would say to his bride. You are my treasured possession and I am yours. Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I choose you. Although the whole earth is mine, you, my bride, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words, not the commandments, all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together with, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So the groom God has gone to the bride Israel. He's brought her to the place that he has prepared. He has offered the contract. He's offered the bridal price, what he's willing to pay and the conditions under which he's willing to join with us if his bride Israel is willing. So how does the bride respond? Verse 8, they all say together, one voice, we will do everything the Lord has said. The bride has accepted to enter into this relationship, this marriage with her groom, Yahweh God. Continuing on, Exodus 19, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, watch how he continues this depiction. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, catch this, and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God says, I'm coming down. My hoopah is coming down the mountain over top of you. And I am coming with a dense cloud, my presence, and the bride should go and prepare herself, set herself apart for me, her groom, preparing for our wedding. She should go and set herself apart because the bride groom is coming. At Sinai in Exodus 19, God prepares Israel for a wedding covenant, 10 commandments that we get to read in chapter 20. If you look at the events leading up to the giving of the, 20, of, the, of the 10 commandments in chapter 20, you realize that God wanted Israel for his bride. What we often see as, what we often depict as legalism is actually God saying, I love you. God calls it relationship. God calls it marriage. So then we get to Exodus 21 through 17, what we call the Ten Commandments. And if, if this is a wedding ceremony, and if these are vows that we see up on the screen, the very quick, short, abbreviated versions, which is not even accurate, they're just what we can use for us to reference what we often see there. If it was a wedding and these are vows, they might sound a little more something like this. Number one, I alone am your spouse. Have no other lovers, no other relationships that come between us. Number two, have no other images of anyone or anything other than me in your head, in your thoughts, on your phone, on social media, at work. Don't watch pornography. Stop thinking about your exes. Keep me as your only image of love. Number three, I have given you 
my name. I made you in my image, so don't bring shame to our name. Don't bring shame to us by misusing it. Number four, spend quality time with me. Who knew God's love language was quality time? Spend quality time with me. Sabbath was made for us to have date nights together to get to know each other more and more, excuse me, more and more intimately. Honor our parents, honor our family. My parents, your parents, we're in this together and our families matter in what happens in our relationship. Number six, how we treat others in our family and community matters. Don't hurt others with your words, with your thoughts. Don't hurt them physically. Number seven, never ever cheat on me. I am your treasured possession and you are mine. Number eight, Don't take what isn't yours. No matter whether it's another's love, another's respect, another's dignity, or another's possession, honor honor me with how you honor others. Don't lie to me. Don't keep secrets from me. Don't deceive me. Don't try to work around me. Work with our family. Let's be open and honest and communicate with each other. Number 10. You are enough for me. Let me be enough for you. Let's not compare ourselves and our relationship to others and what they have. We're not them. I am enough. You are enough for me. We are enough together. What if the Ten Commandments were God's way of saying, I love you. Will you marry me? What if we stopped looking at them as this legalistic, outdated set of do's and don'ts, but instead looked at them as God's marriage vows with us. The beginning of a courtship with humanity that was actually consummated with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We die to ourselves and become one flesh with him through Holy Spirit. And my bridegroom, your bridegroom, our bridegroom is coming back for us. Not having the Ten Commandments would be like having a wedding without wedding vows. When we look at the marriage that God has from then and continued to pursue, from the garden until now to pursue with us, Jesus becomes the ultimate bridegroom for us, his bride. Jesus' vows in God's marriage with us, to us, goes something like this. I love you so much, my bride, that I'm willing to give up myself. The bride's price is me. The bride's price is my life. I, to have you as my bride, this is what I'm willing to pay. To display my love to you, to make you my bride, to make your heart and your soul as beautiful as the white wedding dress that you wear, to make you as pure as a virgin on her wedding night, to draw you to me and us have relationship with each other. That is a price I am willing to pay to have that. I want to end with this last text from Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Pray with me. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we make this a legalistic thing, when we try to take from you 
the vows that we have agreed to, that all of us have agreed to honor you with who we are, that we are yours. God, we say, I do in this marriage. And God, forgive us that we make these these things legalistic, that we make them something that we are forced to obey versus something we choose to honor in our relationship with you. God, we choose you and thank you for Jesus, the true bridegroom, that he has died and paid the bride price for us to live with you. Our hope is that he's coming back. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name with the confidence of being one with you through Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Going back just for a moment back to that uh, betrothal ceremony that uh, we kind of skipped over earlier. Uh, It was during this ceremony that different traditions are done. Sometimes some gifts were passed. Oftentimes gifts were passed. But one of the traditions that often happened was something called a betrothal cup. Once that agreement was made and the groom and the father uh, traveled to the bride's house, once they got there, the father would pull out a cup. He'd pull out a cup and he'd fill it with wine and he'd give it to his son, the groom. And the groom would take it and he would either hand it off to the bride or set it on a table for her to take. And he would offer it to her saying something along the lines of this. This is the cup of a new covenant I make with you today. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink of it with you in my father's house. If the prospective bride takes the cup and drinks from it, it is her way of covenantally saying, I accept your proposal. And from this point on, they are married as husband and wife. If we were to jump forward a long time, we get to Jesus in Matthew 26 at the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And watch this, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we take communion each week, the bread that represents Jesus' body, On the cross, the juice that represents his blood that was poured out, we are reaffirming our betrothal with our Father. It's not just to remember, it's partaking in the wedding ceremony again. Pray with me. God, we come before you to say, I do. We take this cup to honor you. We take this cup in order to honor our vows to each other that you have promised to never leave us, that you have promised that we are yours and you are mine, that we are each other's treasured possession. And there are things that, yes, we are to do and things we're not to do, but we don't do them out of just obligation. We do them because we want to honor our groom. We want to honor what it means to be in relationship with you. And God, we treat other people around us. Love God, love others because of how you have loved us first. And you showed that through Jesus. So we eat the bread and we drink from this cup with the knowledge and the hope that you are coming back for us. We pray these things in Jesus' amazing name.
Amen.